Hey there. Hello. What are you even teaching me today? I forget to look at the schedule before we record to surprise <laughs> myself. That's good. I'm sure the listeners can really tell, like, the genuine, <laughs> I actually don't know what we're I about to no talk idea. about I have no idea. I just showed up. You could tell if, like, you were, hand, you know, phoning it in, like, oh, I actually know what we're talking about, but. No, this is for real bewilderment. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing here? All right, today we're going to learn about the first Red Scare. Oh, yeah, those guys, okay. Uh, yeah, those guys. <laughs> <laughs> the scary guys that's what it was it was just a very particularly scary like i guess film studio you know they specialized in <laughs> super scary movies okay the red scare would be a really good band name it'd be a really good euphemism for a period like there's a lot of cool <laughs> opportunities with that name and I'm, I'm mad that it gets to go to like an anti-communist movement yeah the actual thing is really bad um <laughs> <laughs> it was a period from roughly 1917 to 1920 where people in the U.S., particularly those in power, basically freaked out about crazy leftists. They get super paranoid that there was about to be some sort of revolution. I mean, I can't help but notice that date of 1917. Why would they possibly <laughs> be worried about revolution? I, I can't tell. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> there were reasons for it. And, you know, there were fears about why I say leftists is because there's fears about anarchists, communists, socialists, like pretty much everybody, uh, even just like the syndicalists, like trade uh, unions and stuff. They're also like, shit, those guys might do something, you know, they knew or they thought they knew there's something just around the corner. It's going to be bad for us. That's what the Red Scare was. Oh, if only. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I wish they had been more appropriately scared. <laughs> Uh, yeah, instead their fear just causes them to, you know, take away people's rights, attack people, that sort of thing. Mm, you know, the thing fear usually leads to in this country. Yep. Okay, where are we starting with this? Well, we're going to start with kind of, I don't know, to understand it, we need to look kind of at what was going on in the U.S. at the time and see how that builds up this paranoia, right? Uh, what we'll basically see is that the capitalists start looking around and noticing that the working class is starting to kind of starting to wake up, starting to mobilize, starting to realize that it has the means to free itself. And that was very, very scary for <laughs> those capitalists. I bet. Uh, so first up, there is a rise in labor unions. Okay, great. I like that. Yeah, I, I didn't want to do like a, an exhaustive history. Uh, we're, we're going to hold off of going down that rabbit hole for now. Uh, but the short version is like we had labor unions since like the 1860s, the earliest forms of labor unions, like the Knights of Labor and the oh, Railroad yeah. Brotherhoods go date to about that time. Uh, and then in kind of the 1880s, I think the American Federation of Labor shows up. But all these guys, these early labor unions are trade unions. So they're organizing kind of a, a, on a smaller scale. They're organizing specific people of specific trades and usually, you know, what is referred to as skilled labor. All these guys were fighting for better pay and conditions for their workers. They were, though, definitely fighting for it within capitalism. Even so, the capitalists, of course, were using their many resources, including their government, you know, to fight back against these unions. You have all sorts of labor violence in the late 1800s. But the point here is that the change that 
happens leading up to 1917 and the first Red Scare is the rise of militant industrial labor unions like the Industrial Workers of the World. Oh, I didn't realize they were militant. They were in terms of like what you're talking about is they're wanting to do direct action, to go on strikes, to, you know, have a confrontation with the bosses. And there's I mean, they are super radical, the IWW. They're founded in 1905, uh, and they're different because they, short term, they can be negotiated with and whatever, but long term, they have a real radical opposition to capitalism. In in their, their literal preamble to their constitution starts like this. The working class and the employing class have nothing in common. There can be no peace so long as hunger and want are found among millions of the working people in the few who make up the employing class, have all the good things in life. Um, That's a banger start. I love it. Yeah. So they're like doing both. You know, they're they're going for reform, but also like, hey, we're, we're going for bigger prizes too. Yes. Yeah. They straight up say, between these two classes, the struggle must go on until the workers of the world organize as a class, take possession of the means of production, abolish the wage system, and live in harmony with the earth. Ooh, that is a sexy sexy statement (laughs) that is so cool yeah like so they are full-on saying we have to do away with capitalism you know yeah that's amazing and that union starts to rise meteorically in this time period so they start in 1905 their membership peaks in 1917 right at the start of the red scare so i think that that's part of it is showing the ruling class hey there is a big threat to you right now yeah there's a group of us now yeah and i mean alongside that you also have the traditional unions afl and those guys um still also growing in membership there so overall like a lot stronger workers movement yeah yeah um i think we may have talked about this in our socialist parties episodes but do we have any i guess context for the scale of these movements of like this is a made-up stat that I'm requesting, but something like, you know, like what percentage of people were in labor unions or like were in these kinds of leftist movements? Good question. So I have one source that says 3 million seem to be the trade union, like AFL membership in 1917. That's a lot. Peak numbers for the IWW is 150,000. And the total number of I guess the working age male population, 18 to 65, say, uh, in the United States at the time is 31 million. So like that's a pretty decent chunk with that. What was that first number? Like five, you said? Uh, three. Million. Three. Okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's not, that's not nothing. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. And I don't know how good that working age number is because maybe people didn't work as long back then because of age and life and stuff. So I don't know, but. A good chunk, and and generally speaking, the trend of labor unionization rates is that modern times we have a lot fewer people unionized in proportion to the population. Yeah, for sure. Next, we have a huge event in world history, the First World War. That's a big one, I hear. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's been around in our show before. We're not going to get into real details on it just what we're focused on here. But one aspect that kind of helps lead to the scare is one that we did an episode on the Russian revolution in 1917. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) 
it may why does it make sense i mean you have a whole country where like they did the damn thing they the workers took the power <laughs> yeah and and they kept it <laughs> for a long time like that's got to be really terrifying to the capitalists for sure and like it freshly happened they're sitting there wondering i mean am i next on the on the firing <laughs> squad you know <laughs> Basically, yeah, they get super paranoid. They start seeing Bolshevik plots in every shadow. Um, another important aspect of World War One is the anti-war movement. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I know Emma Goldman got in trouble for this. A lot of our guys in in the cool side of history were against World War One as correctly as an imperialist war and as just nonsense. Exactly. Yep, I have that in my notes, basically. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no war but the class war. There is an interesting split. We mentioned um, the labor unions. Uh, the AFL supported the war effort, and the IWW opposed it. Interesting. Do you think AFL saw it as like, well, you know, this increases manufacturing and like increases our power or something? Partially, yeah. Partially it was just patriotism. Uh, but they get, you know, they're going to get bigger scraps from the bosses, you know. They support the war effort, they minimize their strike actions, and, and they are rewarded with high wages and full employment. Uh, it's a tight labor market because tons of people are being shipped off to kill and to die. So things are kind of good for workers at home. Uh, but the IWW for opposing the war and, and other cool anti-war communists and socialists and anarchists who speak out against it, uh, they really, of course, piss off the government with that. Yeah, you could like get thrown in jail for being openly anti-war. Yeah, it's crazy. So they had they already had laws on the books that targeted anarchists from other countries. You had like the Immigration Act of 1903, uh, but the government took this opportunity to strengthen those laws and make it even easier to define someone as an anarchist or a communist or even a labor organizer could get you if get you. Deported cool. based on these laws. Great. Not like if you were an American citizen, but if you were someone moving from another country and they discovered that you were doing anarchist stuff, they could deport you. Immigration Acts of 1917 and 1918, they really strengthened these, these powers. I mean, that makes sense, though, because they're probably scared of, like, you know, the Soviet Union, or I guess Russia at the time still, but, like, exporting revolutionaries to them as Trotsky like probably would be into. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were totally, you can tell from their point of view, why they would have been afraid of that. You know, there are enemies, so we don't like that they did it, but <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. I'm not, not supporting it. Yeah. Uh, they also passed the espionage act of 1917 and the sedition act of 1918. Yeah. Those are both bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Espionage Act made it a crime to convey information that interferes with the operations of the U.S. military or promotes its enemy success. Okay, that's pretty broad. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that carried a death sentence and or up to 30 years imprisonment. Holy shit. So, bad to do. Uh, it also made it a crime to cause or attempt to cause military insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, refusal of duty, or to willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment process. Oh, that's where Goldman got in trouble, right? Yeah. Oh. That carries a $10,000 fine and or up to 20 years imprisonment. Woof. Ugh. 
Yeah. The Postmaster General also got the power to impound or refuse to mail anything that violated the act. Yeah, yeah. So you couldn't mail anything being like, oh, this this war sucks. Yeah. Uh, this law is still on the books. <laughs> uh, it was a law that they used uh, against Chelsea Manning, Edward mm. Snowden, reality winner, anybody who exposes government stuff. But, like, the fact that it's called the Espionage Act, but also just includes, like, being anti-war, like, that's crazy. Yeah, they, I believe, got rid of certain parts of it. But mm, Okay, okay. Part of it, of course, is still there. The Sedition Act outlawed the use of, <laughs> they had some funny terms here, disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive <laughs> language about the scurrilous. U.S. government, its flags, or its armed forces. Okay, scurrilous. Like, you're talking some nasty shit about that flag. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That flag fucks around. It also Uh, outlawed causing others to view the government and its institutions with contempt, which I hope we do on this show. (laughs) Yeah, we're defo guilty of that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, luckily they repealed it um, in 1920, December 1920. The FBI guys listening started getting out of their vehicles like, oh, we got them. Oh, they just confessed. Oh, shit, the Sedition Act. I forgot about (laughs) They just admitted to it. <laughs> Get back in your car, Dave. Damn, Dave. <laughs> so anyway, the short version of World War One is it gives America this war fever. You know, anybody they see who's anti-war, they see them as anti-American and they go after them. Uh, next, we have the we have a, a little a little bombing campaign that was going on. Uh, anarchists were doing some bombing. Oh, okay. Well, where? Uh, well, this was in the United States. Uh, there were a group of people called the Gallianisti. Okay. That sounds like Spanish or Italian. Italian. That's the There one. we go. Uh, they were followers of Italian anarchist Luigi Galliani, um, who in 1914, uh, these followers started a, a bombing campaign. He was very much, uh, Galliani believed in, you know, basically doing terrorism, propaganda of the deed. Uh, to inspire people to revolt against the government. Uh, so in 1914, the Gallianisti start their campaign by trying to bomb John D. Rockefeller. Oh, man. Um, not to say anything incriminating, but okay. <laughs> yeah, that would have been fine, really. Uh, they failed, though. Rockefeller was out of town, and then Bummer. the bomb didn't go off until way later when they had <laughs> taken it back to headquarters, oh. and it blows up and kills oh. three anarchists. Guys, that's not good. You gotta get your timers right. Uh, yeah. Um, so that that did not work. That's uh, the not police, great. you know, find out about this. They go after the anarchists with undercover agents, and they basically like entrap them FBI style. You know how they like to do find disaffected people and say, "Oh, do you want to do some terrorism and stuff?" And anyway, they got these guys to attempt to bomb a church in 1915. Whoa! Okay. It was a it was an op, so they arrested some of them. Uh, there would be there's going to be some bombing attempts later on that we'll get into chronologically. I'm going to save it for later, uh, but I just wanted to mention this kind of as a cause because it's happening so early in the process. This is also like you know that fear of well, why are they afraid of the anarchists? That's kind of why. I mean, that's kind of fair. I get it. Uh, yeah. Well, this wasn't all anarchists, though. We got to remember that most anarchists weren't about propaganda of the deed. There was a big you know, division within the anarchists movement. Do, do we think that's a good tactic or not? You know, that's true. That's yeah. I definitely identify as anarchist and I'm, I'm not into that. (laughs) You don't have to buy it. 
Yeah, like, I don't think it's effective. <laughs> yeah, I think it just turns people against you. I think the much stronger course of action is the exact opposite of, like, helping people and then being the good guys. Yeah. Light side points. Yeah. <laughs> now, the dark side points, they're kind of tempting. You get lightning, you get forced choke, but, you know, comes with a price. You get weird scars and shit. Yeah, see, okay, the thing you got to do <laughs> is go light side because you can't be mean to NPCs. No, can't do it. In a game, you have to do good. And eventually they make you, like, kick a puppy down a well or something. Yeah, it's, you know, dark side gets pretty bad. <laughs> You don't have to look ugly, and if you spec charisma, yes. then it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg to do lightning. You can still do lightning, but be good. <laughs> it's like you do really bad things, but you're just so charming about it. Like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's fine uh, when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to bombings, I guess. Yeah, bombings, don't do them. Yeah, that's our advice. So hear that, Dan or Dave, whatever your name. I already forgot it. That's partner, Dan. Dan and Dave. Uh, all right. So Red Scare, what happened? Yes. We kind of talk about the causes, why the ruling class kind of gets this in their head, you know, that this is happening. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in the sp this time span of the Red Scare that we'll just kind of talk about each, you know, each kind of topic. So first, you got a wave of strikes in 1919 neat yeah strikes were nothing new in the united states we had strikes before we had the united states uh, <laughs> so that was the thing but the you know go back far enough and it's not really organized by like permanent unions it's just like the workers get upset and you know do a strike and then it's back to work but with the rise of unions you have more strikes and right after world war one there's this huge wave in 1919 of strikes Reason being is that we mentioned World War I had that tight labor market. So tons of people sent off to war, way less workers, businesses could, you know, back then they could still somehow understand like the basic concepts of the labor market and realize <laughs> that they had to pay workers more when there was like a more competitive market for them. Kind right? Of you know? Yeah. Crazy, crazy concept. Yeah. I, hopefully, for whatever reason, <laughs> if we got it, you know, capitalist listeners listening, Take notes. <laughs> Figure that one out, please. Yeah, that's a good one to bring back. <laughs> uh, but now that the war was over, all those workers were coming back into the economy. And suddenly now, you know, now that they're not desperately needed for the war effort, the bosses and their government, they don't give a shit about the unions and they're back to seeing them as like at best a nuisance. Mm, so they start like slashing wages and shit and laying people off. Yep, they're trying to claw back wages, benefits, union rights, uh, and the unions, of course, fight back with strikes. Yeah, as they should. In the year 1919, some four million Americans at some point in the year end up going on strike. Four million. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, there's several examples of this. You can do, like, entire episodes on, like, just strikes or maybe even one of each. There's a lot there. Um, but I just kind of wanted to mention some of the highlights. Uh, the Seattle General Strike, which we've talked about before. Oh, I remember that one, yeah. Uh, in February of 1919. Uh, and we're focusing more on kind of the Red Scare aspect of it. So what were some of the kind of reactions from the capitalists about this? The mayor went out and called this domestic Bolshevism. <laughs> I wish. 
saying the strike was called in the exact manner as was the revolution in Petrograd. Mm, delightful. How long was this strike again? It was pretty long, right? Uh, it was for five days. Okay, but it's the whole city. It was the whole, yeah, it was general yeah, that's impressive. strike. Yeah. And that's how fucking, I mean, literally how Petrograd started. So, I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one major strike that really, you know, really shook the capitalists, scared them a lot. You also had the Boston police strike, which was in September 1919. So I was reading about this. It looks like the police were, they were cops, so they were doing <laughs> bad shit. You know, they were just thugs yeah, for yeah. capital. But the capitalists weren't even, like, paying their guards well enough. <laughs> you got to do that, at least. Yeah, like, they had shitty conditions. <laughs> their, like, barracks house that they had to live at had, like, one restroom for, like, a whole Ugh. bunch of dudes. These cops were particularly dirty. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, I'm, again, I, you know, I do want to emphasize they were doing their job as cops, which is being bad. But it does look like, I mean, they did have some labor grievances to air, too. Uh, they tried to unionize and affiliate with the AFL. Ooh, okay. What did the AFL do? Well, they were at first like, this is cool. We <laughs> want to start unionizing cops. Uh, everyone came out against it in government, uh, the mayor, the governor of Massachusetts, the papers, <laughs> everybody hated it. They called, the Boston papers called it Bolshevistic. They called the cops agents of Lenin. <laughs> I can't even... They're not. <laughs> Which they're not, because they're cops. <laughs> behind Boston in this skirmish with Bolshevism stands Massachusetts, and behind Massachusetts stands America. Wow. They were super against it. A Philadelphia paper said, Bolshevism <laughs> in the U.S. is no longer a specter. Boston in chaos reveals its sinister substance. I mean, specter sounds like it died or something, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they all, you know, 100% against it. But how that, the AFL basically just backs off they're just like oh never mind we're not gonna do <laughs> cop unions uh and the commissioner of the city ends up just replacing all the cops with new officers and get just gives those new officers higher wages wow. and stuff like, i mean it's really telling though that like i'm sure they learned their lesson and like cops are are well taken care of now <laughs> oh yeah yeah they figured it out later and they have uh they're one of the few strong unions out there that, and they also, you know, have support from like the conservative side and everything. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh, these workers we actually have to care about. <laughs> yep. Well, they finally realized they had to actually pay their guards. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> uh, so you have that. You had the United Mine Workers Coal Strike, uh, which is in November and December of 1919. It was uh, a strike for like higher wages and stuff. The coal operators and, you know, the press that was very sympathetic toward them uh, claimed that Lenin and Trotsky had ordered and financed the strike. <laughs> I think they were probably busy, but okay. <laughs> like you imagine Trotsky what runs in with a paper. Look, 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 these guys are on strike. We got it. We got it. We got to get on this. Send them some money. Uh, Stalin robs a train for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they were calling it like a Bolshevik revolution and all this. It was just wow. a regular ass coal strike it was yeah. a, it was a just a strike like i'm sure if you ask those people who are on strike like what is a bolshevik they'd be like i i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah most of them for sure there was the steel strike of 1919 which is pretty long this is september to january of 1920 oh wow and they were fighting for like union kind of like unionization rights basically the 
the right to form a union in the first place. And the steel companies outed the AFL co-chairman who is kind of helping coordinate the strike, a guy named William Z. Foster. They said, this guy, he's used to be a wobbly. He used to be in the IWW, uh, used to be a socialist party member, you know, and basically they're trying to say, oh, this strike, you know, it's being puppeteered by the communists and all that. And I guess, to be fair, Foster would go on to chair the CPUSA for more than a decade <laughs> later. But that's later, you know, at the time. But also, like, maybe that should make you wonder, like, well, if the communists are for workers, like, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. The reporters and the the officials, all those guys think that they rightly perceive that they're not going to be doing well personally as a class enemy if that happens. <laughs> not so much. And so it's kind of part of their efforts to convince the workers that they also wouldn't be well, just dupe them, you know? All right. So in all these strikes and likely in, you know, in others and whatever, like the capitalists, their government, their media, they propagandize, they try to smear them, you know, all that. And not only with propaganda, of course, they're also using force to break these strikes. Oh, yeah. Strike breakers, National Guard troops, scabs, you name it, they use it. Uh, There's... Always a class war going on. The capitalists know that. They're always fighting it. It's our job to realize that it's a thing, (laughs) you know, and not just dupe ourselves and say, oh, America, we don't have class or whatever, (laughs) you know? Yes. It's real and it's violent. So that was going on and it was heightening these tensions. You also had something called the Overman Committee. Okay, what's that? So you had all this... Hysteria, you know, communist revolution just around the corner. Well, the government says, hey, let's do like a Senate subcommittee, the Overman Committee. September 1918 to June 1919, uh, it was chaired by Democratic Senator Lee Slater Overman from North Carolina. And initially it was charged with investigating pro-German activities during World War One. Hey, that's a different goal. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in February 1919... I mean, they just rolled around and said, hey, what if we (laughs) expand the committee's investigation and say we should also investigate all these crazy Bolsheviks out there? Wow. Let's keep this party going. (laughs) Yes. Investigate the Bolsheviks and any effort to incite the overthrow of the government of this country. Okay. So, of course, they're going to put together a fair and balanced, you know, (laughs) investigation of the facts. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to. Give the Bolsheviks their fair hearing and all that. <laughs> you don't seem like you believe that. Um, no, no. I think this is just a big parade for the press to make people hate leftists. Yeah. <laughs> they interview more than two dozen witnesses, the vast majority of whom were super anti-Bolshevik. And even, you know, some of these guys were even saying, like, we should go to war with Russia and stuff like that. Uh, there were a few defenders we saw in Red's. That scene where she was at the here that was the Overman Committee. Oh, that's right. Uh, Louise Bryant went to defend Bolshevism, basically. Yeah, what a badass. <laughs> uh, but again, most of it was super anti-communist. One guy brought a list of 200 <laughs> allegedly communist professors in the U.S., uh, and he declared universities to be breeding grounds of sedition <laughs> and festering masses of pure atheism and the grossest kind of materialism. That sounds hot. I want to go back to school now. (laughs) Let me in there. Get to those festering masses. Yeah, that sounds great. Just a bunch (laughs) of sweaty communists. (laughs) 
Um, the ambassador to Russia testified, claiming that the Bolsheviks were killing everybody who wears a white collar, like a priest white collar thing, or who is educated and who is not a Bolshevik. Wow. Um, no. I mean, a little, <laughs> but no, not that much. But, yeah. <laughs> Some witnesses focused on, like, free love and claimed that Russia was nationalizing women, announcing them as property of the state. <laughs> no, okay, opposite, opposite. Yeah, but it made me think of the manifesto, remember? When yeah. Marx was saying, hey, man, here are these capitalists claiming that we're going to, and then here they are literally doing that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was going on just for good measure. They also threw in some good old-fashioned anti-Semitism. Mm, I was wondering uh, if we are going to get any racism in this. Yeah, we will get more, too. I'm sure. Uh, witnesses claimed that that 19 of 20 communists were Jews. Okay. Um, and they also said, oh, the Red Army is made up mostly of Jews from New York. And it's like, how? I don't know. Like <laughs> They're just dumb, you know, bigots. So. Wow, okay. There's <laughs> not, you know. They don't really actually have any evidence. They were just out there saying bullshit. Yeah. Let me just make up a stat to scare people with racism. Great. Yeah. And this, during the Red Scare, is around the time that Henry Ford's paper, The Dearborn Independent, which had a wide circulation that was mostly pumped up by him requiring Ford dealers to, like, stock it. But whatever. <laughs> of course. Uh, that's when he runs, in his paper, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that, like, anti-Semitic... Uh, anti-communist uh it's just it's a it's a hoax the thing is it's it's a forgery or whatever but they translated and they said oh this is a secret jewish bolshevik plot to oh. you know take over the world or whatever that's it's this terrible document oh it's my during God. the red scare that they published that that's some QAnon shit <laughs> yeah like it's it's proto QAnon stuff for sure that's insane but yeah uh that's the overman committee really dumb yeah, yeah. Also, it's a stunning example of, like, you know, one of the most heralded American businessmen. Like, that's what he was about. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's fucking I was sucked. like, oh, he's just so innovative and stuff. <laughs> well, he was just a dick. <laughs> also a fucking racist, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, the final report from the Overman Committee describes Soviet Russia as, quote, a reign of terror unparalleled in the history of modern civilization. I mean, they got a lot going on. I'll give you that. <laughs> They're kind of busy with stuff. Yeah. I mean, they were they were sort of in the middle of They're civil struggling. war. Um, they also claim that, you know, instituting Marxism-Leninism in the U.S. would basically ruin everything. You know, life and property and the right to participate in government. Everything would be terrible, you know. And <laughs> their recommendation to prevent that was to deport alien radicals, enact a peacetime version of these sedition laws. Cool. Uh, tighten restrictions on explosives, regulate foreign language publication, like basically just do censorship on wow. that. Wow. Uh, and, of course, doing some pro-government propaganda. Cool. Great. Love it. <laughs> well, you know, okay. <laughs> cool that was commission. pretty bad. I, no, I'm, I'm over the Overman Commission. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Okay, so... We can agree that that wasn't great, but you got to believe that, like, the defenders of democracy and truth <laughs> in the fourth estate, the, the, we have know, those? the well-meaning liberal press. Oh, gosh. Nope. They're, they're certainly going to, you know, they're going to take these guys to task and stand up and tell truth to power, right? They're going to tell both sides and give everyone an equal time to speak. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, instead, they called the Russians assassins and madmen, human scum and beasts. <laughs> human scum, Jesus. 
headlines read, Red Peril Here, and Plan Bloody Revolution, and Want Washington Government Overturned. All right, I want to circle back to, like, the numbers we mentioned earlier. Uh, the amount of just unionized people, and, like, those aren't even, like, Bolsheviks, necessarily. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. only three million. I can't, I mean, like, yeah, we had some socialist parties and stuff, but, like, it, there's not, a, there weren't, wasn't enough. Yeah, they were <laughs> no small, too. fucking way. But again, I mean, they, they I mean, they kind of wanted to get it now when it wasn't so crazy is what the thing is, you know? Okay, that's what I was going to ask is, like, the motivation behind this. Like, how much of this is, like, a credible, not a credible even, but, like, how much of it is a genuine, like, I'm scared and, you know, I think this is, you know, the best course of action, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's a credible threat kind of thing versus, like, it's almost like shoring up everybody else. You know what I mean? Being like, well, you don't want to be like these bad guys. Yeah, I think those are those can work hand in hand, you know, like you are genuinely concerned, not maybe that it's around the corner, but that it's some it's growing alarmingly and it could be too big of a problem to do anything about if you wait. And you can lump in everyone on the left or even in the union into that and therefore like scare and like, you know, make your workers complacent into like accepting shitty wages and stuff. Yeah. Cause you don't want to be called a communist. There you go. Good stuff. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Love it here. Next up, you had a wave of racial violence starting in April, 1919 called the red summer. Um, this happens all across the U S and really it could be its own episode. There's a ton there. So we're not going to dive into too much detail, but just to kind of outline it, uh, the causes again, stems from world war one. Like we said earlier, there's the labor shortages, right? And those factories that are mostly in the north. These factories sent recruiters to the south to encourage black workers who were facing, you know, terrible, shitty Jim Crow laws and all sorts of racial abuse uh, to encourage them to move north to these jobs, even sometimes offering like benefits, like free transportation there and everything like to get them to get these workers that they desperately needed. Um, Let me guess that didn't go so hot. So it does kick off something called the Great Migration. Yeah. Uh, the movement of around six million black Americans out of the South and into the urban Northeast and the Midwest and the West from 1916 all the way through 1970. It's a, it's a pattern that we see. But you're right that then you end up with some problems. Surprise, surprise. Uh, a lot of the white people uh, turned around and were racist to them when they arrived. Wait a minute, I thought, like, the North was the not racist place in America? What? I thought it was just the Southerners (laughs) who were racist. Yeah, just those bad Southerners. (laughs) The Northerners are good. Yeah, surprisingly, they were actually both racist. (laughs) The AFL, for example, advocated for segregated workplaces. Woof. White workers uh, oftentimes walked out in protest of having to work with black people. Um, And this ends up boiling over after World War I. Because for a while, it's kind of okay. Like, conditions are, you know, they don't like that people are moving in there with them, but everybody's got a job. But after World War I, when all those soldiers return home, including more than 370,000 black soldiers, the competition for jobs increases. Um, and as strikes are shaking the capitalists, as we talked about before, they turn to using, to exploiting black workers as strike breakers as a way to divide the working class racially. Fuck, that sucks. Because, I mean, like, 
to those workers coming from such poverty that was basically enforced in the South, like they would take any jobs. And it wasn't their fucking fault. They just had to. Yeah. And they're getting, you know, discriminated against by this AFL that, you know, why would I join their union if they're if they're being like that to me? Oh, you know? fuck. That sucks. And the capitalists, of course, they know what they're doing. They're 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 trying to pit the workers against themselves. And this is a beautiful wedge for them to use. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of where they're at in terms of the racial tensions, the incidents themselves, the specific instances, and there's lots of them. The incidents had various like immediate triggers. Most of them are instances of white on black violence, uh, white mobs attacking black people in their houses and their businesses, lynchings, that sort of thing. Of course, you know, black people fight back to defend themselves, but the, like the animus, what, who is starting it? is by and large the, the, the white communities. There's racial violence all over the place, like all over the United States, rural Georgia, Charleston, East Texas, Indianapolis, D.C., Chicago, Austin, Knoxville, Omaha, rural Arkansas, and Wilmington, Delaware, lots more than that. Yeah, and let me guess, uh, the police not so helpful in quelling any of this violence. No, not till it's run its course, you know, not till they want to restore order. In a lot of instances, in a lynching situation, what happens is that someone has gotten arrested and then the people come and want to take them from the jail to kill them or to torture them. And quite frequently, they show up with, you know, a mob or whatever, but maybe it's just 10 guys and the sheriff just just hands them over. That's fine. Here you go. Jesus Christ. Hundreds of people end up killed across the country in what's called the Red Summer. Uh, How did the press handle this situation in the middle of the first Red Scare? Uh, With wild accusations. The New York Times ran a story titled, Reds Try to Stir Black People into Revolt. Uh, They didn't say black people, but that's what I'll prefer to say here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in this story, they reported that the violence was caused by, quote, an agitation which involves the IWW Bolshevism and the worst features of other extreme radical movements. Okay. Was there even like a kernel of a seed of truth here? Uh, I mean, maybe the, the faintest kernel of a seed of a, you know, you have to be pretty removed from it. But One time were, um, an IWW guy talked to a black person. <laughs> right. In that sort of a scenario or like in some cases uh, they had like access to more radical leaning, I guess, publications. Uh, oftentimes this was just like, like black publications that were more critical of the status quo or whatever. And so they were like, Oh, this is definitely communist literature and stuff. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so no, basically anything that didn't just say like, obey the white people. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Which like, why the fuck would they print that? So yeah, no, I mean the, the times went on to claim that black leaders were calling for alliances with leftist groups and praising Soviet Russia. <laughs> They also said that black people basically weren't being grateful enough for what white people (gasps) did for them in the Civil War. Wow, wow, wow. And they also said, you know, the reason that they're being recruited for by Bolshevist propaganda is because they're ignorant. Wow. All the news is fit to shit. That should be their (laughs) new slogan. Yeah, that was the Times. Um, (laughs) The Wall Street Journal wrote uh, that race riots seem to have for their genesis a Bolshevist, a black person, and a gun. That's all you need, man. Uh, the government, for its part, like like we mentioned, uh, mostly did nothing to help stop the violence. 
Uh, they did, however, join in the press's obsession with the black Bolshevik plot. A friend of the show, J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, this guy. Uh, said that socialists were feeding propaganda to black people uh, and stirring them to violence, kind of somehow overlooking the fact that this was mostly white mobs attacking black people. <laughs> yeah, how to explain that flowchart to me. Yeah. <laughs> step one, propaganda. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, white people attack black people. Uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, overall, terrible shit. That was the Red Summer. Yeah, fuck, that's bad. Yes, again, it's super interesting stuff. Like, it's horrible, but it'd be interesting to do, like, an episode on that at some point. Yeah, I think we should, because, I mean, it's interesting, because, like, they're not, I mean, they're wrong in terms of, like, the actual evidence of of these movements being connected in that obvious way, but they were connected because, like, there was that labor issue, and it could have been connected in a good way, you know? Like, we could have had that solidarity, and, like, if the AFI had, like, you know, stood up for black people or like, I mean, how was the IWW with this stuff? Did they make an effort? Uh, the IWW though, they were pro like they, they, they would organize, uh, black workers in the South all over the place. Like they, like they were not like the AFL in that regard. Yeah. I just, I think it's interesting that like there was a labor connection between like black workers and other workers, but like it wasn't, it was not the way they were portraying it. Right, yeah, that's the thing, is like, I guess, you know, said the kernel of the seed sort of thing, it, you know, there is, I guess, a connection, but it's not, they're trying to overthrow the government or kill all the white people or anything. No, they just, like, wanted jobs, and the white people wouldn't let them have jobs, like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. So next we have uh, May Day, 1919. Surely that's going to go over smoothly. <laughs> it's going to be great. Everyone had a great day. We all made a... Uh, early summer pie of berries and it was a good time <laughs> yeah i mean because usually it was fine like the left you know for a while by 1919 as we talked about in our labor day episode had observed may day with peaceful demonstrations and stuff like that like it was fine but this year Uh-oh. in 1919 it did not work out well shake up yeah so there was violence in several cities across the country instigated wouldn't you know it by the state police attacked marchers in boston uh, apparently like trying to take their red flags and stuff okay later a mob went and attacked the socialist party headquarters there uh, and then somehow afterward the police end up arresting 114 socialists um <laughs> wow how does that work you know stop stop punching yourself <laughs> okay um in new york you had uniformed soldiers burning Russian language publications. Wow. Okay. And I bet they didn't like know what it said. It could have been a cookbook. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, but it was in Russia. Um, and <laughs> they also forced immigrants to sing the national anthem. Wow. That sucks, dude. In Cleveland, you saw the biggest outbreak of violence. Socialists were marching in protest of uh, Eugene V. Debs's imprisonment. He had violated the the Espionage Act for an anti-war speech during World War One and had been imprisoned. Um, and so they were also marching to promote the mayoral candidacy of socialist Charles Ruthenberg. And when they're doing this demonstration, they get attacked. There's these uh, nationalist losers who were like, oh, get rid of those red flags, you know? Uh, okay. And they were like, no, we're not going to. And then so they attacked him. Um, and then the police charge in on horseback and just start beating people 
They injure like 40 people. Over the course of the whole thing, they end up injuring like 40 people and killing two people. At some point in the chaos, they send in tanks, literal tanks. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. Yeah, a mob ends up ransacking Ruthenberg's headquarters and basically ruining it. Um, They end up rounding up all the red flags that they had, you know, taken from the marchers and everything. And they have a big bonfire with those. In Cleveland there, at the end of the day, the police had arrested 116 people, including Ruthenberg, uh, and charged them with assaults with intent to kill. Okay, for, well, who was doing the fucking assaulting? Right, yeah, for fighting back <laughs> when the cops are hitting you on the head from horseback. I mean, so it sounds like the media campaign against socialists and Bolsheviks and all that stuff, like, is working. Like, they, they had a crowd of people willing to go beat up socialists. Yeah, for sure. Ugh. It was working and it was constant. I mean, even in this situation, right? The newspapers come out and the next day after all the arrests, they say they arrested all these people. Wouldn't you know it? Only like eight of them were born in America. Just absolute racist fear mongering. Yes. Yeah. They also said, well, you know, they shouldn't have been out there. They provoked the nationalists into attacking them. By just like demonstrating, just having free speech. Having a red flag. Yeah, yeah, what the fuck? The city government, meanwhile, passed laws to restrict parades and the display of red flags. What the fuck? This makes me want to like, go put a red flag in front of my house. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, so that was crazy. Um, also, let's get back to those bomb-throwing anarchists. Mm, what were they doing now? Did they keep throwing bombs? Yeah, they were still out there trying to bomb you know, in their defense, bomb asshole capitalist oppressors. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if you're going to bomb somebody. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty good targets, mostly. Um, they had the idea to deliver a bunch of bombs on May Day 1919. Uh, at least 36. That's a lot of bombs. Yeah. Is this in one place or across the country? No, no, no. Across the country. So oh, they're wow. thinking, boom, there goes Rockefeller. There goes the Attorney General. All these guys, you know, boom. Their plan, they, they make these bombs they wrap it in brown paper pack it with a stick of dynamite it sounds very cartoonish but it really does they they write acme on it and they give it to their friend the coyote (laughs) no what you do you write open on one side of it so they know where to open it they open it on that then this like vial of acid drops onto the blasting caps of the uh of the dynamite and then eventually it ignites it and then boom okay yeah that is some wily coyote shit for sure (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that was bomb making back in the day. Interesting. And, well, you know, the mail, it can be hard even in today's modern world for you to predict delivery times. Just ask (laughs) Amazon, you know. (laughs) That's true. I did order a new phone protector screen thingy because mine got cracked. It's still not here. They'll get you on that. It's okay. Well, back then, of course, it was difficult to. And one (laughs) one of the packages got there early. It was intended for the mayor of Seattle, Ole Hansen. He had just put down the Seattle general strike. So he was a, you know. A bad guy. Villain across the left, yeah. Sorry, was his name Ole or Bull? Uh, I need to look up how to say it. It's spelled, like, in Spanish it would be Ole. Mm, that looks like it'd be Ole then. Like, yeah. I, like he's a fucking Ole prospector. Oh, they're Norwegian. His parents oh. were Norwegian immigrants. So. so maybe it's like Oleg or something or yeah. Olav. That's a common one. That's cooler. He still sucks, but. <laughs> he gets plus one cool point, but he's already, he's way in the negatives. So it's not really going to help his score. 
Yeah, yeah. So he was one of the targets. He got his package early, but as a rich person, he didn't open his mail. Mm. One of his employees did. Yeah, they didn't think about that. Um, he ends up opening it from the wrong ends, and the end doesn't say open. Uh, what's, what happens there is like the acid just kind of falls out onto the ground. It doesn't blow up the bomb. So he, he's just like, oh, shit, what is this? So he takes it to the police, and they start investigating. Oh, no. Uh, another bad dude... Democratic Senator Thomas Hardwick of Georgia, uh, who was the co-sponsor of the Immigration Act of 1918. Of so an was. asshole. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> he got a bomb, too. And like Hansen, he also didn't open his own mail. His housekeeper did. Uh, she could follow the instructions, Uh-oh. and then she lost her hands. Oh, fuck. That's gnarly. Yeah. Uh, oh. The investigation, they, they start one. They, it soon turns up all these other bombs. Targeting all sorts of people. Governors, congressmen, police commissioners, reporters, Supreme Court justices, mayors, businessmen. Lots of people. That's intense. That's that's the most neutral thing I can say about that is that's intense. You know, it, it kind of sucks because, I mean, you know, that's something to think through is they're rich people. You have to, like, physically go up and do it to them. Or they're because they have all sorts of ways to be insulated from regular people, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, they, I think that's interesting. They didn't even think about like servants. <laughs> so, that was one of their bombing campaigns, and that continues into the summer. Uh, on June the 2nd, uh, the Gallienisti succeeded in detonating nine large bombs across the country. Uh, again, they were targeting, I will say here, mostly assholes, because here they also targeted a church, which mm. is a a, a no from me. It's not a good look. None of the targets were killed. Uh, one of the bombs killed a night watchman, and one of them killed the bomber when it went off early. But they were still pretty effective. Uh, one of the bombs blew up most of the house of the attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer. Wow. Like, the attorney general? The the, the country's top cop, yes. Holy shit. Yeah. He'd been a target on the previous one and, you know, didn't get his bomb or whatever. Uh, and this time it blew up most of his house. Well, uh, they didn't want him to feel left out this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was too close for a call for him. And he's going to act to try to find these these anarchists and bring them to justice. Now yeah. it's personal. Yeah. <laughs> he goes to Congress and he asks for some more money to investigate these radicals who he says one day will rise up and destroy the government at one fell swoop. That'd be cool. It would. Uh, <laughs> I think he was thinking that, a few but... steps ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they wanted to, to be fair. Yeah. Congress is like, yeah, dude, whatever you want. And he starts to put together a series of police raids targeting radical immigrants called the Palmer Raids. Now, the reason he's targeting immigrants is because you could deport them using those immigration acts that we mentioned earlier. Cool. You got to bother with things like rights for American <laughs> citizens. <laughs> it's really annoying. So on the night of November 7th, 1919, which was chosen for its propaganda effect of being the second anniversary of the October Revolution. Oh, rude. (laughs) uh, FBI agents and local police, they launched violent raids in 12 cities targeting the Union of Russian Workers, which was this anarchist association of Russian immigrants. Uh, And so they bust in and they beat up and they arrest hundreds of people including people who just happen to be in the area or whatever, like innocent passersby. Jeez, of course. Uh, That's in November. The next set of raids starts in January. 
1920. That lasts for like six weeks and was coordinated by Hoover. At least 3,000 people across 30 cities in 23 states are, again, violently arrested, many of them without warrants. Lots of them are held in overcrowded and unsanitary conditions. Yeah, fuck. How many people end up getting deported and or killed? Well, so overall, in, in the course of the Palmer raids altogether, about 10,000 people are arrested. Oh, my gosh. Like we said, they're just rounding up people who are there in the first place. So a lot of them, they end up letting go. So about 3,500 are detained. Like, that's how inaccurate these things are. So, and, you know, how many of those are, are released with a black eye or oh, yeah, yeah. You know, a that broken was not rib a, or something? Yeah, that was not a, a peaceful arrest. It wasn't, it was not orderly. Yeah. And eventually, 556 people are deported. Wow. Uh, including Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, although they had actually not been picked up in the Palmer raids. They had been jailed and convicted before that, but they end up deported with the rest of them. Yeah, this went out with the same shipment. Yes. Bummer. Uh, well, okay. Out of that many, it's it's a big reduction each time, 10,000 to 3,500 to 556. Yeah, yeah, that's quite the rate. It's relatively few compared to how many they arrested. There was a guy named Louis Freeland Post, who was the acting secretary of labor, uh, which back then was in charge of immigration. So this is pre, like, homeland security stuff. So it used to be just a, like a sub-department of the labor department. And Post was pretty meticulous and he thought that Palmer was going too far and probably getting a lot of innocent people in these raids. So he makes sure to like dot all his I's, cross all his T's, and he rejects a ton of the de deportations. So he, he, I mean, he does, I don't want to let the guy off the hook completely. He does sign off on 556 That's of them. That's a lot of them. Yeah. But one of the things he mentions is like, uh, some of these guys, like they were clearly like overtly pacifist anarchists. But the law said anarchists, so I deported oh, them anyway. So he's very sucks. much like a lawful, neutral sort of, you know, character. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, well, I had to. It's like you didn't, though. <laughs> yeah. So it could have been a lot worse because he does reject a ton of them. Wow. So thanks for not being, you know, as the much worst. of an asshole as you could have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, Low bar. But yeah, I guess he, he I want to give him a little credit. He does yeah, sort of yeah. help. but hmm. Reluctant shout out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they deported lots of people. Uh, they deport them on a ship called the Buford on December 21st, 1919. Uh, the press nicknamed it the Soviet Ark. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they called all of them Russian Reds. And one of them I saw said, uh, just as the sailing of the Ark that Noah built was a pledge for the preservation of the human race, so the sailing of the Ark of the Soviet is a pledge for the preservation of America. Ugh, you can't see this, but I'm making a jerk-off motion. <laughs> <laughs> Yucky. Uh, yeah, gotta love it. I mean, that I, I just keep including that because the press propaganda throughout <laughs> is just relentless. It's phenomenal. Oh, my like, gosh. They're always, they're like a Greek chorus. They're always on the sideline just cheering them on, you know? I mean, it, it's like reading Slate's coverage of the Olympics. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic they're just so like easily scandalized by everything <laughs> i haven't read any of it so what what do you 
just like very anti-China? Extremely anti-China. Like they took this girl to task for playing for China and they're Mm. like, usually someone does this when they think they have a better chance of like making the team or winning a medal. And like, that's not even the case here. And I'm like, bitch, if that were the case, you would be calling her like sneaky or ambitious or, you know, like you'd be giving Mm -hmm. her shit for that too. Like don't act like you have a high horse here. (laughs) It's so bad. And of course, now all the Russia stuff, which like a lot of that stuff is nasty, like all the the figure skating abuse. Yeah. Like that's bad. I've only tangentially heard of that and it doesn't sound good. It's not. But Russia's not a good place. It's not. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Some other government actions. In New York, they had kind of a mini version, a domestic or a state level Red Scare. Uh, The state government there on January 7th, 1920, their New York State Assembly speaker, a guy named Thaddeus C. Sweet. That's a crazy name. That's a that's like a a D&D character you half finished. And then like you had to come up with the last name and you're like, oh, "Oh, sweet, sweet, like candy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, he did not live up to his last name. Not a sweetie. No. Instead, he declared that the assembly's five socialist members, which, first of all, dope. Yeah, right? Would love that. (laughs) They had five socialists elected to the New York (laughs) State Assembly. Uh, He said, yeah, but these guys are assholes. They were elected on a platform that is anti-New York, anti-American. And he basically just talks a bunch of shit about them and then calls for a vote to suspend them from the body. (sighs) Sorry, what was this guy's position again? I was too busy making fun of his name. (laughs) Uh, He was like their Speaker of the House. Okay, okay, gotcha. Assembly Speaker. Gotcha. And so he calls for this vote. They obviously vote against suspending themselves. (laughs) Yeah, we'd like to stay, please. And one other guy votes against suspending them. Otherwise, 140 (gasps) to six. Wow, 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 that sucks. I mean, okay, little mini rant. This is like why I got really mad when people were like, well, if you want to change things, just run. It's like, well, first off, (laughs) let's talk about elections and how unfair they are. Like, Mm -hmm. secondly, even if I like did a blood sacrifice and managed to get myself elected, like you think they're going to let me do anything? Yep. Even if they let you go sit and be in the chamber, like they're going to kick me out. (laughs) And nowadays, you know, maybe they don't do all that, but they'll still like basically lock you out of anything. If one or the other party at least doesn't like you enough to put you on anything, you're not going to do anything. No, I'll be a fucking, I'd be a punching bag. Yeah. So they suspend them. They then had a trial where they just talked a bunch of shit about them. And then they decided, huh, you know, we should full on expel them from the assembly. So on April 1st, 1920, they overwhelmingly vote to kick them out. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. How much of government hearings, every time I like read about them or you know see footage of them it's so much like just a parade for press it's just like Mm -hmm. what are we doing here (laughs) oh yeah overwhelmingly (laughs) people are not talking to even literal people in the in the congress like they're they're just talking to empty seats for the press no yeah it's freaky it's like you're not this isn't a real conversation we're walking watching this is an orchestrated press conference with like it's like a play (laughs) yeah it's very strange so that was that was an interesting side note, I thought. Yeah, what the fuck, New York? Cool of you at first to have that many socialists, though. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. But then, obviously, you got to be an asshole to them. <laughs> yeah, Sweet. yeah. All right. Uh, the government was also putting out some crazy laws and propaganda during the first Red Scare. Surprise, surprise. 
By 1920, 24 states had passed red flag laws punishing the display of the red flag. Some also banned expressions indicating disloyalty or belief in anarchy or being antagonistic toward the government. How is any of that legal? You just hope you don't get challenged, you know? (laughs) That's insane. You can't just be like, well, I mean, okay. The left is always accused of things like fucking like, oh, you want thought crime. Like, are you kidding me? Like, do you see this shit? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, 26 states and lots of local governments also had anti-syndicalist laws by 1920, which made it a crime to, quote, destroy organized government by any method, including by the general cessation of industry, a.k.a. a general strike. Wow. Okay. So just we're going to take away all your bargaining power. As far as propaganda goes, we already talked about the newspapers pretty much all throughout. But America's film industry was also in on the game. There were some interesting kind of examples of that where, like, they would put out a movie with the plot of a heroine who's, like, having to resist, you know, the Bolsheviks trying to nationalize them or whatever. (laughs) Cool. Very hot. The New Moon was one of them along that vein. And The World and Its Woman. (laughs) (laughs) What does that even mean? I don't know, but that, those are two movies that tried to do that. You also had movies where, like, you would have mm, kind of a a worker, you know, a good American worker. Uh, here's an example. Dangerous Hours. Dangerous Hours. Tells the story of an attempted Russian infiltration of American industry. You got this college kid, and he's, like, vaguely liberal, you know? But he gets seduced both romantically and politically. Of course. By a female agitator. Of course. Those dirty women. Yep. And she works for a Bolshevik, Boris Blashi. Of course, <laughs> Boris. Boris. Um, and so, yeah, this guy's like trying to convert everyone to Bolshevism and trying to like subvert the good American, you know, trade union thing, the labor movement into like pure you know red communism stuff wow okay but this is really interesting because like obviously we're talking about the first red scare like second red scare there was a lot of involvement on the left like in the movies yeah but at the time it i wasn't there yet seen examples of of hollywood like making anti-first red scare stuff yeah yeah they were on the wrong side in this one (laughs) yeah yeah They also just um, would also put out movies where it wasn't like this, you know, scheming, clever Bolshevik enemy. It was just like a stupid comic relief Bolshevik Mm. (laughs) who's just like, you know, very dumb or drunk. Oh, like like Boris and Natasha from Rocky. Yeah, that kind of sort of. (laughs) It's like they're evil, but they're they're fun. But don't worry about it. Yeah classic technique there vilify your enemy but also (laughs) degrade them i don't know i think it it was partially ridiculous to look back on that sort of stuff and just like what were they thinking um but in some ways like we saw with the newspapers and everything this stuff culturally is sort of powerful i think so i i think when you set up your press as to be like the way they talk about themselves like we said like it's all the news that's fit to print it's you know we're the people who speak truth to power we're the people who are gonna just tell you the facts like you're inclined to believe especially if it's a large enough publication you're inclined to believe it because it's in there like they they have a lot of power and you have to examine like how they're using that and it's really hard to do 
Like most people don't have time for that. Like I don't have time for that really. No, I don't either. And like, even when I'm like researching something for the show, like I'll use news sources like as sources and, and then I'll have to be like, okay, let me find like some more like other stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, let me find a local paper maybe, or like, you know, something that's a little bit closer to like what's happening and like, like several alternate sources. And it's, it's really hard to do. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy and like, if you wanted to follow down the rabbit hole of like, okay, who's funding this newspaper? Oh, it's all big businesses. Okay. Like that takes time too. Like it's a lot of work. Yeah. I think the best piece of advice I can give to leftists looking to figure out, well, how, how do I decipher anything? How do I trust anything is to work more on building your lens, right? So like honing your ability to see things through, Whatever brand of leftism you are, I'm not going to say you have to be Marx, Leninist or whatever, but you know, hone that, like develop your ideology, figure out where you stand on things. What, how do you know, that sort of build that and then use that when you look at traditional news sources, you know, cause they can give you a lot of information without meaning to, if you have a good lens to look at it through. Yeah, it's almost like learning how to kind of translate from a different language. You're like, okay, you said someone was um, resisting arrest and they, you know, I think we talked about this in our police episode, like the language they use around police violence is really telling and you can kind of decipher like what actually happened once you get past all of their like passive verbs and stuff. And yeah, for sure. And like what I was talking about, like with the slate stuff, like, yeah, there's some kernels of truth in there. Yes, this athlete did such and such. But like you also you have to brush past so much of the not contextualizing, I guess the the adjectives and the The editorializing. Yes, editorializing. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's not and that's really tricky because then people accuse you of just being like too entrenched in your beliefs like you don't want to listen to other people but like you you have to be able to to do both like you have to be able to like take what you need from it like facts wise and then like yeah interpret it and i would also again recommend some some good old noam chomsky stuff on that we did we did an episode on manufacturing consent that i think was pretty good yeah yeah i agree (laughs) (laughs) all right all good things must come to an end, but so must <laughs> all bad thing. things. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> uh, the boys at the Justice Department. The Justice Boys. Got some crucial <laughs> info from all those anarchists that they questioned in the Palmer raids. And the info, the intel that they got, you know, from, I'm sure, just politely asking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They gave them coffee. You know, they let them take their time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gave them as many cigarettes as they wanted. Mm-hmm. They they found out, okay, there's going to be a massive uprising. Bombings, assassinations, general strikes, everything. May Day, 1920. There's no way this is true. This is this is false information gotten through interrogation. Am I right? Uh, Well, let's see. Hoover goes out there. He warns everybody who would listen. There's going to be a big bombing. There's going to be a general uprising. Palmer, the attorney general, goes out there, too. He says, I've got a list of marked men, the people who they're going to try to kill. Uh, He says an uprising is going to happen in Europe, too. The newspapers are running headlines. Nationwide uprising on Saturday. (laughs) Man, it's like they're scheduling it for us. Thanks. And now I can put it in my G-Cal. I can make sure my (laughs) schedule's cleared. I can call my comrades. 
Yeah, it sounds cool to me, honestly. They're uh, doing the organizing for us. The, <laughs> the and then the leftists like, wait, shit, are we? Do we have stuff together? <laughs> Everyone has to call each other. Like, did you do this? Because <laughs> you were right. Uh, they weren't actually doing anything. I figured they weren't. Police were training. The states were getting their militia ready. Cities were mounting <laughs> machine guns on police cars. Uh, ready to meet the red menace and beat back the Bolshevik rebels. Wow. Uh, but yeah, nothing happened. Nobody showed up. <laughs> <laughs> May Day passed with no uprising. And how does Palmer look about that? Uh, looked like an idiot, right? Yeah. Like, also, why would you show up if, if like, if they're that prepared? <laughs> like, True, that's a yeah, bad if you plan. Had something like put it back in your pocket. Yeah, I would like, cancel at that point. Let's, let's take a <laughs> rain check. Uh, but I, I think I like I think you were right that it was just tortured information. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Yeah. So you know the ever so reliable information gained by torture. Everyone knows that's accurate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the best Always kind works. of information. That's what they should print in newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> and they do. So um, yeah, uh, Palmer gets discredited. The newspapers, which had as we've seen, just been his little lapdogs the whole time. They turn on him and they start writing about how he was foolish. How he could, how could he ever think that this would happen? You know, <laughs> even though they were just printing it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like <laughs> you, just, you love to see it. Their corrections column just says yes. <laughs> corrections column it, column. See is yesterday. <laughs> scratch articles written on these dates, and it's just like last year. <laughs> my bad. Oh my gosh. Um, by this point, lots of people especially like more liberal types who are kind of concerned about civil liberties and free Mm -hmm. speech and the like, who really hadn't been speaking up to this point, I guess, because (laughs) where were you? Um, They were kind of tired of the Red Scare post the acting labor secretary guy from before, the one who like rejected a bunch of the, he testified before Congress defending his release of all the Palmerade people, you know, saying like, hey, this is why I released them. Um, and he did such a great job of that, that people shut up about trying to, they were, a lot of people were saying, oh, maybe we should cens- censure him or impeach him. But A, the May Day stuff didn't work. And B, he was, he just was pretty eloquent. So they were like, ah, oh, damn, I mean, okay. And by this point, even some conservatives are like, oh, maybe the government's going a little too far, you know. <laughs> Again, these people were nowhere to be found. Yeah, before. that's so weird. Like, what the fuck? Like, why? Why were they not? Is it just they didn't want to be lumped in with them? Is it just that they were swept up in this? Like, what? what's the well, logic there, you think? It's not 100%, right? So, like, obviously, some people were saying, like, this is bullshit the whole time. But clearly not enough of them. You know, the numbers change at some point. So, you know, somebody changed their mind or changed their tune one. But I guess, you know... When Palmer's sensationalism was so obviously refuted, at that point, they're, they're, they're kind of seeing themselves in that. It's like, shit, man, I backed every word that dude said, you know? Yeah, it, it's easier when there's like a specific and solid failure to point to instead of just yeah. like it petering out. And a convenient person to be like, look at this exactly. idiot. Look what he did. Yeah, it was all him. It wasn't me. <laughs> I wasn't fooled for a second. Yeah, so <laughs> Palmer... He actually had been kind of a favorite in the upcoming Democratic presidential nomination in 1920, but that completely falls apart. He gets beaten soundly. Uh, Republicans end up nominating Ohio Senator Warren G. Harding, and he kind of signals to people that the Red Scare was done. He says, uh, 
too much has been said about Bolshevism in America. It is quite true that, it, that there are enemies of government within our borders. However, I believe their numbers have been greatly magnified. The American workman is not a Bolshevik. Neither is the American employer an autocrat. Oh. <laughs> so some real enlightened centrists sort of bullshit. Yeah, right? everyone's good. <laughs> We're all good here. We're all, We're all Americans yeah. here. Exactly. But, I mean, basically, he's just saying, look, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah, we're done. And, yeah, that's the first Red Scare. Okay, interesting. Let me see. Some key takeaways for me was just like, uh, yeah, like you kept bringing up the press and just their buffoonish involvement in it. <laughs> just just great stuff. Uh, um, and the the race tensions i think is important i think that's something that gets left out of a lot of like u.s labor history like we tend to ignore that part of it yeah um and how that was not not a smooth thing no that was yeah that was certainly a big part of this a big fear that the justice department had about you know hoover was saying oh all, you know everyone's going to be radicalized among the black population and stuff um, that's a fear that's going to carry forward. Like that fear is not going away. They're going to continually target uh, black radicals, black civil rights movement, anybody. They're going. They're always suspecting that they have radical ties. They still do. Yep. <laughs> uh, what was it? How many of the Ferguson activists end up just committing dead in suicide their cars by setting themselves on fire and shooting yeah. themselves multiple times in their car? Enough that we have to ask that question. Yeah. Which is just disturbing. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with the, when you were mentioning the press, like how they were acting. It's funny that I, I think their switch is not so much a switch. It's, it's consistent in a way because they are consistently in favor of whatever the government is doing. <laughs> because whatever the government's doing is whatever the capitalists want to do. And they are the people who are running the newspapers. Yeah, that's the thing. Like you, know? you can't. The, the in our current system there is no such thing as a free press like that just doesn't unless you run a little indie newspaper situation or i don't know like that's about it <laughs> yeah and especially when it comes to foreign policy stuff like this isn't oh, so yeah. much here but just now it's kind of in the news you know is that these guys like rely on sources within the defense department Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of times they're just reprinting that stuff. They're just getting press releases from the Department of Defense and just saying, hey, run this. I mean, they do that domestically, too. Like, they'll just run police reports and be like, this is what happened. It's like, um, are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, that's a great point is they are on the side of authorities. Mm -hmm. They frequently just print that as fact or, you know, I mean, they can get incensed about like scandals when someone doesn't play by the rules and things like that, but the system they're on its side. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They love a scandal. They love like when someone's caught out in a lie and stuff like that, hypocrisy, that kind of thing, but they'll never question the like inherent immorality of these acts. Like, like even the, the guy who rejected like the deportations. He wasn't saying like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be like rounding up mass amounts of people and doing this. He was like, some of these guys weren't bad, but I still punish them. Like, <laughs> yeah, he was like, we're, we're going to follow the rules, damn it. You know? Yeah. And he was like one of the most decent guys mentioned by name in this episode today. <laughs> so like, that's a pretty bad system he got. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. One other thing I'll, I'll bring up is the strength, the durability of anti-communism 
I think is impressive because we still see that around. Oh yeah. In in it's pervasive. It's it's like ingrained there. It's And I think too the idea of it being a foreign import is still around. And like even though like you said, like labor strikes have been happening in this country since before we had a country. Like if you want to know more about that, look at like people's history of the United States. Like there are mm-hmm. examples of it. It it is seen as a foreign thing so that way they can use like anti-semitism and racism and you know anti-immigrant sentiments like all these different tools so they can push it away as un-american yeah and they reinforce this in our culture in the media that's just presented as the dominant as the accepted view that come on man everybody knows that right (laughs) And, it, and and then if you start to see it a different way, you cut, you're kind of made to feel, you know, if not literally ostracized by people, you, you feel like nobody sees it the way I do. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, the all those laws really struck me struck me about like, you know, you can't even speak about being anti-war or anti-government mm-hmm. and all this stuff. So, like, it's now dangerous to do those things and to organize and to find like-minded people. And it's like, again, painting all this as completely un-American. Like, there's an assumed baseline of like, like, like that thing that Harding was saying, like, oh, like we're all we're on the same side here, kind of stuff. To be American is to be anti-communism. Like, they're tying those together so yeah. tightly. Mm-hmm. Nasty stuff. <laughs> also, just our our usual reminder: all these things that the government did are not bad things that they used to do and don't do anymore. <laughs> Even though things that they stopped doing, they would resume doing if they thought they needed to. Can I segue into next week's episode? Because that'll be perfect. Sure. Okay. Uh, We heard a lot about police violence on this episode. We're going to hear more about it on next week's episode because we are talking about Move Philadelphia, uh, particularly their, their violent encounters with police. We're going to be focusing on on two main instances, but there's a lot of story to cover. Uh, but basically, preview: they were a like radical anarchist kind of, a, I would say, back to the land sort of organization, and okay. um, the city of Philadelphia did not like them, so they they had it pretty rough. Well, I cannot wait to see how rough, because I imagine it's going to be terrible. Oh, it's really bad. <laughs> it's 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 real fucking bad. Great. <laughs> Yay. This, this will be I fun. do mean that. I'd like to learn about terrible, horrible things. I do too. That's why we're here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, I never want to be gruesome on this show, but sure, like, yeah. it is interesting and it, it does keep that little, that little spark of anger alive. To see the masses, you know, being oppressed and not feel angry about it, it's a type of liberalism. You don't want to mm-hmm. do it. That's what I heard last week from some cool guy named Mao. Stay angry. Yep. But stay happy, too. Yeah. A joyful warrior. (laughs) Well, I'm going to go play some Pokemon. That's how I'm going to stay happy. And maybe I'll stay angry if I, like, can't catch everything I want to. (laughs) All things in balance. As it should be. All right. Well, then I will talk to you next week. Not in real life. I'll talk to you sooner than that because we're, like, related. (laughs) But, you know, you know what I mean. I know what you mean. All right. (laughs) Bye, y'all. See ya. 
Hey there, comrades, just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.